Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Sounding Jewish Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Samantha Cooper, and each episode presents my conversations with musicologists, ethnomusicologists, and sound study scholars who specialize in the music and sound of Jewish experience. I am absolutely delighted to welcome you to today's episode featuring Dr. Kay Kaufman Chalamet. Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode of the Sounding Jewish Podcast. I would love to give you the opportunity to introduce yourself to our listeners. Thank you, Samantha. I'm glad to be here. I am Kay Kaufman Chalamet. I am the G. Gordon Watts Professor of Music and Professor of African and African American Studies at Harvard University. Wonderful. What are you currently thinking about or working on pertaining to Jewish music? I am currently starting a new project, one that is dealing with the crossroads between Jewish studies and African studies. I'm at the very bare beginning of it, though, and am just now getting together literature I know I wanted to read and things I want to think about. Awesome. That's great. We're going to come back to that, I think, a little bit later on, but let's backtrack a little bit. And I'd love to invite you to tell me about one of your earliest encounters with Jewish sounds or music and why this was such a formative experience for you. And then in particular, what kinds of personal or musical experiences may have motivated you to want to study Jewish music? I really grew up in the synagogue because my dad was a synagogue administrator. And so from my early years, I was in the synagogue offices, I was at services, and all of the musical sounds embedded themselves. It was a conservative synagogue, one that had an organ, and a wonderful cantor, a baritone with a beautiful voice. went to a Jewish nursery school, and that started heavens. It was a preschool, so uh, very, very early years, and we sang. And I guess most important of all, I always sang. I was a singer from the very earliest days, and so everything was not just embedded in my ear. It was in my voice and in my whole self. When did you start classical voice training? I had my first voice lessons, I would say, in junior high school, when we moved to Dallas from Houston. I was a Texan. And the wife of our cantor at my father's synagogue was an accomplished singer who gave voice lessons. And she took me on as a student. She was a wonderful person. And I very much enjoyed the lessons. I'm not sure I would have had voice lessons otherwise in high school, but uh, they were very much classical voice lessons. And I, of course, was deeply in love with musical theater by that point. But it was a wonderful experience. And surely it enabled me to become a music major. So is that what you did for your undergraduate degree? I was a voice major as an undergrad. And um, I went off actually to the school she had gone to. So see that the influence ran deep. I was at Northwestern for my first two years, and I had a wonderful voice teacher there whom I adored. But she then left, was leaving after my sophomore year for, I think, the Manhattan School of Music, if I remember correctly. I didn't want to go to a conservatory. So at that point, I also decided I wasn't going to stay 
in Chicago at Northwestern, and I took myself off to the School of Music at the University of Michigan, where I was also a voice major, but I had a liberal arts education, which was what I wanted. There's so much resonance between our experiences, but we can talk about that another time. So I'd love to hear more about your scholarly trajectory. How did you move from your love of classical voice and this training into the academy? Well, I moved away from voice because all around me at Michigan were amazing singers. And I thought, my goodness, if it's like this at Michigan, what is it going to be like in New York if I try to do something there? And I didn't think I had the instrument. And later I realized that was what it was like in New York. Jesse Norman was at Michigan then. And it goes on from there. It was insane. Of course, <laughs> I didn't have the same level of, of instrument. But I then realized also that my head worked probably better than my voice. And that's when I decided I would go into musicology, which I loved. I loved writing and thinking about music. And I especially loved living traditions. I, I realized already that my interests were people and music. And you put that together, you get living traditions. Then 20th century, later 20th century, at least I'd say. And I actually had decided I wanted to study the music of Albin Berg, the composer who was a member of the Second Viennese School. And I heard things in his music that I thought were full of meaning. the music. I did sing his songs, but I was going to do that. I made a pilgrimage to Vienna right after I graduated. So that was the track I was on. And then how did you pivot from Alvin <laughs> Bear? What happened? <laughs> yeah, what happened? How did we get to where you are now? I got here because I was in my first semester of graduate studies at Michigan. And I was in an early music class. I think it was Renaissance and Medieval. And the professor was trying to be ecumenical and cross-cultural. And he brought in a recording of the liturgical music of the Falasha of Ethiopia. That's the name of the recording. It was made by Wolf Leslau in 1951. And I had never heard of the people. I had never thought about Ethiopia or anywhere that far south. And I did a paper on it that semester. I was also in an ethnomusicology seminar. And I decided I would write about uh, Ethiopian music. And I was fascinated. And I realized that was what I wanted to do. So I think that uh, you never know where you're going, but topics themselves have agency and come up and bite you. And this one came up and bit me. <laughs> I love that way you put that. How was your interest in the study of Jewish music shaped by your experiences in graduate school and your work on the Falasha? 
Well, I mean, I always had interest in Jewish studies and things Jewish. I had been in Jewish youth groups, but Alvin Berg surely wasn't Jewish. <laughs> and this I'm Schoenberg was of the second Viennese school. But it it just fit. I think it was more a matter of a fit with Ethiopia, which had an Old Testament, a lot of Judaica, even in its Christian church. In Ethiopia, I somehow could envision myself working. So it was a mixture of Jewish studies in a different locale, in this case, the Horn of Africa. And that's, that's I think, what attracted me. It wasn't arbitrarily to Jewish studies, but this was a place, once I realized I wanted to do ethnomusicology, then Ethiopia just simply colonized me. What advice would you offer to prospective students or new scholars who are thinking about entering either musicology or the relatively small inroads of Jewish musicology? I would say cast the net wide, see what comes back, and see what really lights a fire. Because mm -hmm. I think to do research and to do dissertation work and to think about some sort of a scholarly career, whatever context you hope to pursue it, it takes a lot of energy and a lot of persistence. And I think one has to have a fire in the belly to really want to do something. So I, I think one needs to wait. One needs to try out a lot of things and then wait and see what comes up and grabs you. And it, it seems to me that this happens to everyone at one point or another, and it can happen in different ways. It can be hearing music of a tradition you've never heard before, or meeting a musician, or it could be reading about something that makes you curious or going a new place. So I don't think there's any one equation. I think some people probably come to the field through belief. Mm -hmm. your practice, which is fine as well. That was not my approach, but it surely was from a heavily socialized background as part of Jewish life and Jewish culture. Yeah. Well, at this stage of your career, you've been a mentor to so many scholars, many of whom I know, and to me as well. And now I have this really wonderful opportunity to ask you who have been some of your biggest mentors or advocates or role models throughout your journey. Yeah. I studied with William Malm and with Judith Becker at the University of Michigan, and they actually were wonderful mentors and gave me a good start. And I have always appreciated what they did. Oh, also, I should mention Edna Coffin, who was a professor of Hebrew at the University of Michigan, who set up my first tutorials in Amharic, the Ethiopian vernacular, and supported me so fully. I mean, she really was excited about the project. I think everyone else was a little wondering how it would work for me to go off alone to the highlands of Ethiopia. But Edna didn't, and she was wonderful. So I give her credit, and she also got me started with my language study. Joanna Spector, the scholar who did a lot of work on Yemenite Jews, on Indian Jews, Chinese Jews, she was interested in other Jews. And I went to see her before I went to do my fieldwork. I visited her in New York my first or second year. 
in graduate school before I went off to Israel to study languages. And I think she was a little concerned about me, but she had traipsed all around the world. And for the rest of her life, she remained a mentor because we then moved to New York after I finished my PhD. I took a job at Columbia and we lived in the neighborhood on the Upper West Side and we used to have dinners and holidays and she was quite a wonderful role model in many, many ways. She was a very brave woman. And I appreciated that. And then I would say some of my most powerful mentors have been colleagues. And we have mentored each other. And I can think of two. In music, it is surely the musicologist Ellen Harris, with whom I have been dear friends since my first year at Columbia, which was her first year at Columbia. And we have, for the last 41 years, mentored each other, read each other's work, given comments, written letters. I mean, that has been absolutely wonderful. I've learned enormously. And that has been a wonderful relationship. And another mentoring relationship with a colleague in Ethiopian studies, the historian Stephen Kaplan who I met when I was just finishing my dissertation and realized the materials I had gathered actually were out of Balasha uh, Beta Israel is their traditional name, Ethiopian Jewish monasticism. And he was finishing a dissertation on monasticism in Ethiopia at the Ethiopian church at that point. And he was living in Israel, an American who had been schooled and was uh, later became part on the faculty of the Hebrew University. Anyway, we have been close colleagues since 1978. So I have these two wonderful colleagues in different areas, both of whom are historians, and they've meant the earth to me. And there are other many other people along the way who've been helpful and my students in so many ways have been just wonderful interlocutors and wonderful for new ideas, feedback, critique, all of that. Wonderful. So your research project, which recently came out, is not a project in Jewish studies, part of my dual identity as a Jewish studies scholar and an African music scholar. Right, exactly. But several years before that, you published Let Jasmine Rain Down. right Oh which was a book about Syrian Jews, officially Sephardic Jews, but also Jews who were very close to the Arab musical tradition of Aleppo from which they came. And I did in the mid 80s, my first team project with my students at NYU. And for a year and a half, I think there were about 20, 21 people all together who participated. We did research. We went out to their neighborhood in Brooklyn, not so far from Coney Island. And we were invited to come and to study the Pismonim. This was the idea of the community. And I've always done projects that the communities have supported. But this was just wonderful. And we, we made field recordings. We set up an archive for them. And we studied the repertory of Hebrew hymns called Pismonim. And they're very, very interesting because they have, many of them, tunes from the Arabic musical tradition. Hatta el kafir, ha, 
also you have popular music from the Arab sphere, from Aleppo mainly, but from the broader Middle East, being incorporated into hymns that are used both for various rituals, everything from circumcisions to holiday sings around the table, and they are also used in the liturgy. And it's a fantastic tradition. It's one that captured me aesthetically and introduced me to Arab music, which I had not been knowledgeable about until Syrian Jews taught me about Makam, the musical system, and about the famous singers. And I learned how Syrian Jews had interacted with their local environment in Aleppo, and then in the New World with recordings once they had immigrated at the turn of the century and afterwards. So fantastic experience. And it did come out of a team research project, but then I continued through the end of the 80s and all through the 90s doing my own ethnography. And I extended it to work in Mexico City, Jerusalem, as well as New York. And the book ended up being about music and memory among Syrian Jews. It was a joy to do that. And I've written a number of articles since the book came out at the end of the 90s. So it's something that has remained an active part of my scholarship. In fact, I just came from a class where I talked about it today. Well, you've kind of already addressed this, but just to make sure we cover it fully, I'd love to ask you about your favorite methodological models or tools, which you most often use. How and why would you say that you developed an appreciation for them? Okay, I guess you're asking me about ethnography in part, which is, of course, the methodology that we all use as ethnomusicologists and students of whatever music we study. It has been a particular interest of mine because that is the place where people in music come together. And that is the place where one tries to get inside traditions from the point of view of their practitioners. And what is so ironic is that I was a singer, but the major traditions I studied, the Ethiopian liturgical traditions of the Beta Israel, of the Ethiopian Jews, of the Ethiopian church, which I also did a huge project. Women are not practitioners, and this was not a tradition I could perform. And the Syrian Jewish tradition is an Orthodox Jewish tradition, and women do not sing it. So ironically, there I was a singer studying vocal traditions, but I didn't do that. But I maybe as a result, I've gotten more and more interested as years went on in the working methods and theories of ethnography, musical ethnography. And that continues to be a subject I write about and think about and do a lot. I would say there are probably a list of kind of core beliefs I realize I've developed over the years as I've worked, which kind of move just from method into theory. And it's not just one theory 
because I don't think that any single theory is probably good for all things. I do think ethnography is pretty useful as a method across the board, but there are a number of scholars whose work has influenced me. Do you want to hear about these? Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Are you sure. Absolutely. Okay. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a list. I mean, I think early on in the 70s, Clifford Gertz was a major influence, and especially his work on art as a cultural system, and how one part probably in some ways related to another. And that made a huge difference to me in my first study of the Ethiopian Jewish liturgy in Ethiopia, because I had to make sense of something that didn't seem to fit. And I especially love the notion of thick description and close observation of detail, because I thought that way you get texture and nuance. But I, there were others whose work I really like. Um, I love the work of Renato Ronaldo, the anthropologist who wrote Culture and Truth, um, the notion of social reality being dynamic and linked to history and human relations, nothing static. This I have found a kind of a guiding principle. And I think I may have come across it earliest there. And from the Africanist part and African-American studies part of me comes W.E.B. Du Bois, whose idea of double consciousness, having two levels at least of consciousness of the world around you and traditions, coming from the African-American disrupted experience, this seemed to me to fit Jewish experience to a T. And also experience of migrants and people who have to go into diaspora who are forced to move. So that has been a very, very core concept in a mobile transnational world that kind of gave a shape to the process of social reality. And I would say that in terms of ethics, the work of John Dewey, the American philosopher, has been so important. And his notion, again, not of rigidity, but of improvisation. And how do we make sense of experience and especially moral experience? And his notion that ethics should be a center of gravity. I found that really wonderful, plus collaboration as an ethical ideal. I'm sure that's why I started doing all my team projects and I've done a series of them. So I don't go for a no one size fits all theory. I don't like just systematic rules. I like discussion and alternatives. And that's how I felt. I have found in recent years, the work of Deleuze, very interesting. And especially more recently, I got into the notion of the anthropology of becoming which Beale and Locke developed from some ideas of Deleuze and looking at individual and collective struggles and what outcomes they have. And that I know has been related to my work with Ethiopian forced immigrants after the revolution in Ethiopia. So there is always a link for me between the materials I'm working with and theories that I get interested in, but I more often than not like things from the inside and try to see if I can get my ideas from that. So I guess I like to study what carriers of the tradition suggest be studied, and that makes it collaborative in a broader sense. And it gives also agency to the musicians one knows. And I prefer theories that resonate with the values and ideas of the people and traditions with which I work. 
um, most recently this notion of sentinel musician, which really looks at the agency of musicians and how under even the most difficult circumstances, they do good work and important tasks and important initiatives for the communities of which they're part. So again, it's music and people. It's what it boils down to. Yeah, this seems like a perfect place to ask you to tell me a little bit more about this comparative project that you're tossing around the ideas for. All I can say right now, because it's barely taking shape, it definitely comes out of all of my early work with the Ethiopian Jews and my findings about their liturgy, that it did come out of a monastic tradition, which made it quite an outlier in Jewish liturgical studies. And I had envisioned myself in Jewish liturgical studies and went to study what I expected would be an ancient Jewish liturgy. And with that, I found myself betwixt and between Jewish studies and African studies. And I guess that's where I've remained, although it has also come as an alternation. But the the new project is really to look at these fields of study and see what they have offered each other, see what parallels there are between them, and to see how ideas from one have inflected other work, and both my own and others. I'm not just going to look at my own work. It will not be a totally reflexive book, but it will be critical and it will be comparative. And that that is where I am now. I'm gathering sources and anything you can suggest is welcome. <laughs> It sounds like a good place to be. <laughs> Unstable, but exciting. Definitely not stable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So your entire career really has been this opportunity to teach others in a lot of ways. And it seems like you've had this remarkable chance, even this year with your migration studies class, to use the classroom as an extension of your research pursuits. And so I wondered if maybe you could tell me a little bit about your recent lecturing or teaching experiences and how you feel like they've contributed to your research agenda. I always teach what I'm researching and what I'm concerned about because that way it has a life and one can bring in new materials and one can also get feedback. And I always try to credit everybody for any suggestions they make. That's really important when you do that sort of process. But yes, I mean, I do see migration as the one of the pressing issues of our time, that and climate and democracy, I mean, it's right up there. And so I have very much valued being able to bring it into the classroom and also to respond to the world around. I mean, this is not something that happened some time ago or in a vacuum. It's happening every day in the cities in which we live. So many places where we're focusing this semester mainly on the Eastern Mediterranean and looking at the Ottoman Empire. And that included a lot of Sephardic Jews. That included the Syrians that I've worked with. And the Ethiopians aren't too far away. And they were going back and forth across the Red Sea as well. So it touches on all the communities I've worked with, all of whom have migrated now in one form or the other over a huge time differential. But that course has been an interesting one. It gets a very multidisciplinary crew. And it's one that itself is constantly changing. So one has to constantly update, look at new literature, and also look at the world around. So I like the way that it positions one between kind of scholarly studies and historical studies and 
everyday circumstance. So now for the heavy hitter questions. How do you understand the field of Jewish music? What issues or challenges within this field of study do you think that scholars today need to remain attentive to? I think I conceive of the field of Jewish music as, in effect, a global music study. I see it as world music in the sense that it is international, it is transnational, it is transhistorical, all of the above. So for me, it's an unusually diverse musical universe. And that's why I've been able to teach it successfully in universities that are not sectarian and to classes that are multicultural, multi-religious. In one class, we even did a book of essays because our Judaica collection is so extraordinary with recordings. We were able to, everybody was able to find a topic in a cultural zone that they were familiar with or where they had linguistic competence. So in that way, Jewish studies is sort of the international dream. And that's how I found it really very exciting. And I guess that is how I conceive of it and understand it. That was Studies in Jewish Musical Traditions from 2001, right? Yes, that one. But also my Soundscapes book. My textbook includes Jewish case studies and Jewish examples. There's a big Syrian case study in there. And I just put it right in with all the rest of world music. <laughs> I love that. And you're also not the first on the podcast to suggest that Jewish music should be conceived of as a world music tradition. Oh, well, this is very good. I'm, I'm, I will try to guess who else said it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you believe that there is such a thing as Jewish music or an identifiable Jewish sound? Why or why not? If so, how would you characterize it? And if this question seems too essentializing, what <laughs> questions about the music and sound of Jewish experience would you ask instead? I think the experiences of, quote, Jewish music are particular and cultural and local in their occurrence. And one has to be part of a Jewish experience to then have musical associations. And that then for the individual is likely an identifiable Jewish sound. There are some Jewish sounds that have gone broadly enough that a number of people associate them with a Jewish identity. I'm thinking of certain aspects and mannerisms of Yiddish music, of especially the klezmer tradition and maybe the krech. You know, there's certain ornaments. I think that within the uh, Euro-American sphere, there probably are certain sounds and harmonies and forms of minor scales that are at times associated with Jews. Avinu but generally, I think it is a subcultural, rather community-based association. And from all the communities I've been part of, each one of them has different Jewish musics. So that's where I would probably situate it. Perfect. Well, thank you so, so much for agreeing to be on the podcast. 
I'm sure that listeners are going to love your episode and I just am so grateful for your time and thank you. Well, it's a pleasure and thank you for inviting me and for doing such a gracious interview. Thanks for listening to the Sounding Jewish Podcast. I would like to take this opportunity to thank our sponsors, the American Society for Jewish Music, the Milken Center for Music of American Jewish Experience at UCLA, and Harvard University Center for Jewish Studies. This is the final episode of Season 1 of the Sounding Jewish Podcast, but stay subscribed to receive some very special bonus content over the summer. We'll be back with Season 2 after the Jewish High Holidays on November 1st, 2023. Bye for now!